You're listening to the Kilcullen Diary Podcasts. Stories in sound from a village grown bigger. Hello, I'm Brian Byrne, and this is Kilcullen Diary. Next week, on the 6th of August, writer Hazel Gaynor's latest book launches in Ireland in advance of launches in the United Kingdom and America. Originally from New Yorkshire, Hazel has lived in Gilcullen for 14 years and published her first novel, The Girl Who Came Home, in 2012. Her books since then include A Memory of Violets, The Girl from the Savoy, The Cottingley Secret and The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter. Hazel's books have made it to the bestseller lists of publications such as the New York Times, USA Today and the Irish Times. Her latest is The Bird in the Bamboo Cage, based on the true story of a group of English and American schoolchildren and their teachers interned in China by the Japanese during World War II. When she came in to talk about it, I first asked her how she'd come across the story. I first heard this story through a podcast I listened to from an American uh, radio show And it started out as this sort of amusing anecdote about waylaid Girl Scout cookies. And I was listening to this thinking, where is this story going? And it very quickly developed into this astonishing story, which I actually got goosebumps and still get goosebumps when I think about, of the connection being to these Girl Scout cookies. And one of the people these cookies was meant to be going to was a lady who had grown up in this school in China and had found herself caught up in the Japanese occupation during World War II and her and her school friends and teachers were eventually taken to an internment camp. And I I, list, I just sat at my desk and listened to this story unfold and I couldn't believe that girl guides, school children and war in China had all connected in this way and I I just knew instinctively it was one of those stories I just instantly wanted to know more about how had they all reacted to that how had they been affected in later life how had the teachers helped the children deal with this horrendous situation very privileged children who'd never experienced any sort of hardship and suddenly were in the most horrendous situation so yeah it was it was literally one of those okay this is a story i haven't thought about the part of war a part of the world i haven't really thought about writing a story set in um and then your your sort of novelist mind begins to take over and research 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 and that's when you know you've a story how did you go about researching it so i always start with sort of broad strokes so the the school that was mentioned in the podcast Google is your great friend for things like that. So I started to look up Chefu School, Weishen, the internment camp, this area of China, and fortunately found an awful lot of articles written about this school. It was the China Inland Mission School. So a lot of the children were um, sons and daughters of missionaries and British, American, European diplomats. So as I said, very privileged young children. It was a very elite school. So there was a lot written about the history of the school and this profound moment that happened in the school's history. And then you start to read wider. So then I discovered a book about lots of children in that part of the world who were taken to internment camps around 
the, the Far East, the Pacific, um, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, China. So this wasn't just a one-off. This was something that had happened a lot during the, the war. And then the broader sort of understanding of the, the war in the Pacific, um, which was something I hadn't really read much about books like Empire of the Sun and movies like like Empire of the Sun and it reminded me very quickly of Tenko, a program I used to watch with my mom on a Sunday evening about a group of women who were in one of these Japanese internment camps. So there were little nuggets of familiarity um, and then I go kind of more detailed so I found a lot of the school records are held in a university in London, SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies. So I went to research and that's when you get the real nitty gritty of personal diary entries, reflections from the teachers, records of what the children were doing. And this is gold dust because that helps you understand what their day looked like. And, and I think when you get a handle on an individual person's mindset and daily routine, they stop being this distant historic figure and they're just a person or a child or a teacher or a mother or a person like me and you. And that's where I think you can start to really build character and story. Did you find anything during that research that surprised you? I think the whole story surprised me. As I say, I just, of course I knew about the British evacuees, you know, the Pied Piper programme and taking the children out of the cities. And it had never really occurred to me that there were child displaced children around the world who found themselves caught up in the war. And I mean, we talk about internment camps from our view of the Holocaust and um, the Nazi camps that we know so much about, but I knew nothing about really the Japanese internment camps and the Japanese-Chinese war that had been going on to lead up to this. So the whole thing surprised me that these kids had this privileged upbringing and it was all pulled out from under them literally overnight. I think one of the things that shocked me was how readily their parents had left them for significant periods of time anyway already. So their parents, as I said, were missionaries. So the children would go to school, the parents would be off across these vast continents and wouldn't often see their children for maybe a couple of years in normal circumstances. And reading the children's reflection about that experience, I, I was quite shocked by how, how much that impacted them as they grew up and in adult life, how scarred they were still by this sense of abandonment by their parents. And then obviously having to deal with this added harrowing situation of war and danger but there was a, a real sense of sort of missing childhoods. And actually one of the research books I read was called Stolen Childhoods. And it, it was that sense of their ch childhood just was taken from them. They suddenly had to become very grown up and self-reliant and resilient, not just because they were in war, but they had to be anyway. For you as a mother of mm. children of your own and, and going through all this, mm. That must have been very emotional, even harrowing. Yeah, I mean, I think I always become really invested. You have to become really invested in your stories. And, you know, you, you're sort of going through this strange process of reading this, this thing that really happened 
but then trying to recreate that on the page and, and that's the job that's the work so you can't be sitting there sobbing every <laughs> every day and then having to make the dinner and take the kids to rugby or whatever it becomes it's your job it's work so you do have to detach the two but every now and again you read something or on reflection back maybe more when you're editing and it it is very upsetting you know and you think what would my children I think that's what changes for me when I'm writing about something that I can relate to on, on a human level those kids you know how would I have felt as a mother knowing my children were in this horrific situation and I could do nothing to help them um, yeah and you look at your kids and, and of course you know they live this incredible life with loads of opportunity and yet so did the children in Chefu school who who then ended up in this awful situation they were so hardy they were so resilient and up, upbeat really hopeful they were always really always looking on the bright side and that that sort of I suppose British stiff upper lip sort of war spirit that we talk about the blitz spirit um, I really saw that coming through in in how they dealt with it whereas I think my kids now they would just complain about you know where's the Wi-Fi <laughs> I, I know I mentioned in my review of the book that it was very English which makes yeah. a great deal of sense yeah. and, uh, how much of your own childhood growing up in Yorkshire were you able to to put into writing this particular book geographically you know you couldn't get more different from a small village in York, Yorkshire and this vast continent very different landscape that these children were in however they did often say that Chefu school was like a little bit of Britain that had been dropped into China that it was so they were so cosseted that their school day was very much a very British school experience so often they were very unaware of Chinese culture and that's one of the themes I bring through with Nancy that she feels frustrated she wants to know more about the people she sees working in the fields beyond the school she feels it's wrong that she's not thinking about those people that, whose country she's in um, and that's a very topical conversation at the moment as well so I suppose what do I bring from growing up in Yorkshire well I was a brownie guide so I could definitely relate to that part of the story which actually that was a real emotional piece for me remembering that sense of sort of community as being a brownie remembering the little songs we used to sing remembering how desperate I was to be a good girl and do good deeds and lend a hand and that all was talked about through the, the children in in Chefu school and that was quite emotional when I, I listened to little um, audio clips of those songs and I knew every word and I remembered how I felt in my uniform so that sense of sort of purpose when you become a little unit like that which is really what held these children together it was their routine of brownie and girl guides it was a sense of identity putting on their uniform looking up to their teachers being very practical you know learning earning their badges and the sense of pride when you get a badge and you sew it onto the sleeve of your uniform a hundred percent that was me growing up in Yorkshire so again I always say you know history looks really distant and and these people are in weird clothes and the photographs are all black and white but the minute you colorize that and that you just lift that person out of that time and place and imagine it in yours there's lots of things that connect us same fears hopes family 
love, death, all of those things are universal. It doesn't matter when and where we are. And that's what I hope to get across to people in my books. You've gone through all that research. You've, you've, you've come close to reading, come close to the people that uh, were actually there through the letters, through whatever else you found in your research. Mm. You have so much stuff. How do you get to structure a book <laughs> then that uh, can be just uh, simply read and understood? That's not yeah. simple. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's sort of a wrestling match of words, book, structure, sense. And that's something I've, I've come to understand more with each book I write, that the, the distillation of this enormous amount of information but what actually do you need in your story? And there's a lot that's left out and I've learned to get over that. <laughs> you know, I, I tell my husband and my children about these extra bits that never make it and it's like the director's cut, it's still out there. Um, and I think it's just learning your craft of what serves the story and what was just really interesting to hear or learn or read and often less is more. So. It's a juggle and that's where rewriting and redrafting and editing and just being ruthless. You know, I took probably 40,000 words out of various drafts of this 100,000 word novel, which is almost half another book, but you can't think about it that way. So it's, I was very clear at the beginning, I wanted two voices. I wanted Nancy, a child, and Elspeth, a teacher, because what fascinated me was how this shared experience was being seen very differently from the children's innocence and the teachers trying to protect the children from what they were very aware of was the, the danger coming and the intent of these guards that were looking you know, sort of in control of them. So we have Nancy and Elspeth who talk to us in alternate points of view and I knew from the beginning that was how I wanted to tell this story. Um, and then every so often we dip into Nancy as an adult looking back with little snippets of how that has affected her. So that was always the plan. Did you find it difficult to, to write the same scenes from the two different perspectives of a child and an adult with their own life experiences quite different mm. at different stages? Was that a difficult thing to do? No, it wasn't actually. They both, you find this sometimes with characters, they you either struggle to find them or they're, they're, they're there. And I felt with Nancy and Elspeth, even just with their names, their names never changed. Their voices were quite clear to me. I suppose from, as I say, remembering what I felt like as a young 10-year-old girl, what, what, how important my friends were, that those sort of gossipy, silly things we used to chat about. Um, and then as, a, as an adult, as a mother, as someone responsible, I know what it's like to allow your children to understand a bit of what's happening in the world, but to protect them from the really awful bits that they just don't need to know yet. So that sort of juxtaposition was actually quite straightforward. And I really, I liked that play of how far did Nancy and her understanding go? And then as a reader, we get to see actually what's really happening behind an event she's seen over there whereas an Elspeth can be more in that more harrowing, dangerous situation. Because you can't, you can't sugarcoat things like this. You can't avoid the more harrowing parts of this piece of history. But at the same time, I didn't want to, the book to be 
too difficult for people to read, too graphic. I never want to do that. I think often we know enough in our minds as adults to fill in the blanks. Um, well, that was very clear, but in particularly one or two areas that you, that you did write about, which yeah. we won't go into here because people will read the book anyway. Yeah. But I think, again, I, I said it to you that the what we imagine is often more powerful than what we're told. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I've read lots of books and there are some books I, I just, they're too tough almost to read. So I, I was trying to strike the balance between being honest and truthful about what had happened, but not making this a painful reading experience. And that ultimately what we're seeing coming through is this sense of determination and hope and friendship and that it is a difficult piece of history, but it, it's it's not relentlessly harrowing. You know that there are little moments of showing what's happened there, but then we you know we move on quite quickly. The book is publishing next week, and at this stage of your career, you must be used to that process now. Never, <laughs> never get used to that process. It always creeps up when you get a publication date. I mean, I've been working on this book now for three years, and you have a publication date set usually about a year out from that actually happening and then you find yourself in the middle of a global pandemic and things all get thrown in the air and and my publication date for Ireland actually got brought forward a couple of weeks just a week ago so suddenly it's next week which is great in lots of ways um, but my box of books were delivered the other week and you never get tired of that experience. I, I have my first hardcover in the UK with this book. It's just always surprising and I think you because you never know and I always say I've done my job now it's up to the readers. The book is not mine anymore. It belongs to readers. They will turn the corners of the pages, put Tesco's till receipts in as bookmarks, they'll put coffee cups on top of it. Brilliant. That's what I, I want people to do. But do you get nervous still? Of course. Yeah. yeah. I'm always I always say I'm a human cocktail of nerves and excitement. That's exactly how I feel every book because of course you're going to be judged on what you've spent three years of your life creating and of course you want the reaction to be a resounding five stars all the time but of course I know that's not going to happen. And what I have learned to do is put some of the nerves in a little box and not worry too much about reader reviews because you can't please everybody. And I know that the people who are meant to read and enjoy this book will read and enjoy this book. Um, so ultimately I'll find a glass of champagne and I will enjoy celebrating the book. I think it's really important to do that. And I'm, I'm always really proud to get to this point. How many books does this one make it? I think it's eight. <laughs> I can't even lose track. <laughs> My kids laugh at me. They're like, Mum, you're so old, you can't even remember. Um, mm. The reason I get confused, because obviously I co-write some of my books with Heather Webb. So I've had two books with her, and we are writing a third. So the rest are all Hazel Gaynor books. And then I had one book, which was an anthology written with eight other authors. <laughs> so I'm quite confusing. But I, I think this is book eight. <laughs> oh, what difference has it made to you to become a successful author, what differences have made to your just your personal life? Well, you see, you say successful author, and yet there are so many things that I still want to do. So I'm, yeah, I mean, success comes in many layers. I think is is probably the way to say it. And I'm, 
it's just been the most wonderful thing to be able to do later in life, shall we say. So I started writing when I was 40 and here I am heading towards my 50s next year and I feel really lucky seriously to do this job because I love it so much and I think I think I should always have been doing this but it's it's given me time with the kids which I will always be grateful for and actually this book is dedicated to Damien, Max and Sam and it's taken me eight books to do that it's probably not something I should admit it has definitely given me time to be with my family which I, I wouldn't have done if I was rushing off into Dublin to back to the law firm and it's allowed me to actually find these incredible stories these pieces of history I've met some amazing people I've made some fabulous friends and yeah it's just been a it's been a whirlwind um, but I, I I'm now able to sort of look back and, and see what's happened at each stage whereas in the earlier books I was a little bit more caught up in the dazzle of what was happening whereas now I've calmed down a bit and bedded in <laughs> for the long haul <laughs> you've collaborated as you mentioned on a number of books with Heather Webb and mm. um, do it, does doing that lighten the load of producing a book? In a way, yes. So publishers really like an author to have a book a year, which having just said I've taken three years to produce The Bird in the Bamboo Cage, you can see how that doesn't add up. So it's really great to do the co-written books with Heather because it allows us to write slightly different books to our own historicals, which tend to be slightly heavier. Um, so our own, our co-written books lean more towards romance um, and s different stories that we possibly wouldn't write alone and of course that then allows you to fill a gap a little bit in your own Hazel Gaynor books so next year for example I won't have a Hazel Gaynor book but there'll be a Hazel and Heather book and that's great from a publishing point of view and of course you've a, you've someone else writing half of that book um, so you produce another book for your readers to enjoy but it's a little bit less all on you and it's great crack we love it we actually really enjoy writing books together we've learned a lot from each other as well actually and the distance hasn't hindered us at all writing in the time of coronavirus or indeed any career in the time of coronavirus yeah. is going to be a thing mm. uh, for a while it's also a thing that we'll be looking back on yeah what kind of an effect has it had on you your writing so far well I it's I, I haven't written <laughs> It's been, it's just been so unsettling for everyone. The world is so different and publishing no more or less than any other industry has had to very rapidly adjust. As I said, publishing schedules have changed. Lots of books have been released which haven't been on a bookshelf. So I feel very lucky actually that The Bird in the Bamboo Cage is releasing when we seem to be in this, hopefully a gap between lockdown and potentially the next wave. It's, it's completely disrupted my schedule. I need routine to write and obviously with the children being at home and my husband being on lots of conference calls, <laughs> the, the time and the space and the peace and quiet to write has just slightly disappeared. Um, I have been writing a bit still, so Heather and I have been editing our next book. That was a book already in process. I think it was easier. I'm struggling to find the headspace to start the next Hazel book. But I'll get there and we're, we're sort of moving around each other in the house and just trying to find new ways to connect with readers so lots of online author events 
more videos and um, speaking to camera than I would ever have wanted to do just to keep connecting with readers. Um, so there are lots of positives actually. There are, there are readers who I've been able to connect with because of technology that I wouldn't have done otherwise. But I think we just have to adjust and adapt as best we can and, and you know, crack on. Just going back slightly, you've, you've always been a, a writer who has encouraged other writers mm. and I know that you even do it in the school across the road. Yeah. Uh, you do it at events and one of the ways you did was the Inspiration Project, a workshop for writers, a yeah. series. How did that work out before things came to a full stop? Yeah, we, this is um, myself, Catherine Ryan Howard and Carmel Harrington. As I said, you know, I have made these incredible friends and these ladies are friends for life. Um, out of our writing experience. The three of us very much were of the same mindset that you pay it forward and we were given advice when we were starting out and when you do reach a level of success I think it's really important in any creative industry to to help other people up. You don't sit there and protect your space, there's room for us all. And we said what would we have really wanted, what would have helped us at that stage and we said actually just a bit more honesty about writing as a job, as a career, as a publishing industry. Um, so we started the Inspiration Project, which was initially a weekend and then became a one day writing event where we would talk about not so much the craft of writing, but the business of publishing and, and helping authors, aspiring writers understand um, how do you get paid? These questions that nobody ever asks and what what does a royalty actually mean? and what happens if you sell the rights to your book in Germany and on all these sort of mysterious questions so we dispelled all myth busters of writing I suppose we should have called ourselves so we did that four times I think um, and actually we were just making the decision to maybe revisit some of that and put more content online do podcasts when this happened so we'd already started we do a week uh, monthly inspiration diaries now on the inspirationproject.ie where we each take it in turn to share five steps of writing advice around different aspects of writing. And we have three aspiring writers who are diarising their experience every month, which I think is really helpful for other writers to see that it's not just them that gets stuck or doesn't know what to do with their manuscript. Mm. Um, so we're doing that for the foreseeable, um, which is great. And it's a really nice way to keep reaching out and helping other writers and as I said we just felt it was really important to dispel some of these myths you know this isn't an exclusive club that you have to have a special card to become a member of I think the more we can help each other the better for all of us all we want is you know books and content and, and creativity so yeah looking back at your own bookshelf of your own publications now at the moment and I'm sure you have one do you have a favorite child amongst them well, actually, they're all in boxes because since we moved house in October, I can't even tell you the mess in my alleged office, which is now playroom, classroom, <laughs> cat hangout, everything. It is amazing when I, when I rarely take the opportunity to stop and look at them. And it's often when I'm doing a piece for, and I have to have a nice background behind me. So I line up my books and go, wow, I didn't do too bad. Can you have a favourite child? I, think, I don't think you're allowed. Are you? <laughs> I'll tell you one thing. The, the, my favourite book is always the one that's just coming out because it's the one you're closest to, 
the one you are proudest of because you've done it and there are times when you think you're never going to and you do actually let you do let books go as I said at the beginning and actually sometimes which may sound silly I forget some of the characters names in in past books because I think you have to inhabit that world and then you have to sort of almost take it out of your brain to make room for the next thing um, so the current book is always a favorite and I, I suppose I'll always have a real affection for the thing that started it all the girl who came home because that book allowed me to do this job um, so I think you're you're always going to look at the first book as a the start of the bookcase and it will always prop up the others in that way and let's um, finish off by giving a bit of a plug to the bookshops yes the bookshops without bookshops you wouldn't have a job absolutely and I, I feel like I'm banging a drum at the minute particularly trying to encourage people to shop local find your independent bookshop do not automatically click the online giant option obviously here in Kilcullen we've the most amazing woodbine books and Dawn and the team are exceptional and have deservedly been recognized as that with awards etc they've been again just so quick to adapt I've had books dropped in my letterbox and then they've rung me to say we left it we worried it's in the rain you have to run down to your letterbox and pick it up I mean they they care so much about books I love the fact that we have such a gorgeous bookshop in our community and I can't encourage people enough to support it um, and now more than ever people need to just take a moment to stop and think does that extra couple of euro you give to the online giant really matter go and put it into the local community and we have obviously Barker and Jones in Nace, we have the Maynooth Bookshop wider afield. We're blessed. You know, we, we've, when I talk to my readers in America, they have to drive probably into the next state to find a local bookshop. And I think we sometimes don't appreciate how lucky we are to have that community. And you can walk in and say, oh, my, my son read this. Do you have anything similar? That personal recommendation. With lots of local authors, so I, I can't do or say enough for our local bookshops, um, and often go in looking for one book and come out with several, <laughs> and that's a really good thing to happen. That was Hazel Gaynor, whose *The Bird in the Bamboo Cage* is published next week by Harper Collins. I'm Brian Byrne. This is Kilcullen Diary, and thanks for listening.